you know, both the church and really the broader culture are having this conversation about the nature of racism and, and sort of the, the, that dichotomy goes, you know, is, is racism personal? Is it, is it primarily personal, individual choices, attitudes, one's heart? Or is it systemic? Is it communal? Which one? Tell us. Well, biblically, I think we have to affirm yes, right? Sin is never less than personal and individual. We are all culpable, responsible agents of action and change. We, are, um, we have individual choice. We must answer for that, take ownership of it. But at the same time, let's not forget that we are sinners by nature, are we not? Which means that whenever humans get together, guess what? We bring our sin right along with us. It happens in churches. It happens in schools and in institutions. Happens in nations, corporations, and yes, wait for it, even in families. You know... It's one thing to have this sort of distant, abstract, intellectual debate about personal versus systemic sin in the life of a country or culture. That's one thing. But it's quite another to have that discussion within the context of our relational lives, in the context of our marriages, in the context of our families. Yet, that is where Jacob takes us this morning. That is where our text is going. Now, to kind of ramp up to speed here, last week at the end of chapter 33, remember Jacob has this amazing reunion with Esau. There's peace, there is affirmation from God. But remember what God had told to Jacob some 20 years prior to this when Jacob was at Bethel. Remember when the angels uh, appeared to him in a dream? He said, now, Jacob, when when I call you back to Canaan, you're going to come back right here and you're going to worship me. You're going to remember my faithfulness. You're going to build an altar. You're going to make some sacrifices. And so that's, that's where you're heading, Jacob. And we see that God had called him back. But mysteriously almost, at the end of chapter 33 last week, we saw where Jacob didn't make it to Bethel. In fact, he stopped 30 miles short and settled in a land called Shechem. Now, we don't know exactly the reason why, although I think we can speculate, Shechem, let's just put it this way, it was a beautiful piece of property. It was bottom country, as we say in East Tennessee. I mean, it was good for plowing and irrigating and, and raising crops, not compared to that hilly, um, rocky country up in Bethel. It was also, Shechem was just perfectly situated uh, along natural roads of trade. It was an affluent area. It would have made sense for, for Jacob and his entourage and his family as they made a living for them to settle right there. Regardless of his reasoning, though, and this is the pertinent point, this was a fateful choice by Jacob. Now, when I say fateful, I don't mean fatal Okay, fatal is decisive. Here's what I mean by fateful. And if you don't like this def, def, uh, definition, take it up with Mr. Webster. Here we go. Having far-reaching, often disastrous consequences and implications on future events. Fateful choices. And maybe even as I say that, you can immediately relate. 
And you think about all the fateful decisions that have been made in your life on your behalf that impacted you, that you have made that have impacted others. And, and so much so, some of you might be at a point of just personal despair about it. You can look back on choices or current choices and they seem so determinative. They seem to have set such a course. You're not even sure how, could you, how you could deviate from your present course. But as we will see, and this is, this, this is the main point of this passage, for God's full, the ultimate thing, the thing that is ultimately decisive is the cross of Christ and the grace of God. And Jacob is going to see that. I want us to see that. And so there's going to be two points this morning. Here we go. Jacob's faithful flaws and God's decisive grace. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to need your help this morning because this, is a, this text is such a window into our soul. Jacob's life and his choices are such a mirror of ourselves. But Lord, we do not want to despair and grieve as those who have no hope. So Lord, whatever we're facing this morning that is a consequence of fateful choices, fateful decisions, either made on our behalf that impacted us or that we've made and participated in, Lord, let it all lead us to the foot of the cross this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jacob's fateful flaws. Look at verse 1. It says that Dinah, by the way, who at this point in time is probably 15 or 16 years old, it says that she went out and visited the women of the land. This is in Shechem. Now, the connotation here is that she wasn't going out to swap recipes, right? She was looking for a good time, right? She was Angelica, Schuyler, and the Schuyler sisters, right? Going out on the town, she was going to meet some soldiers. She was going where she shouldn't be. Daddy didn't know. And understand something, this was dangerous on two levels. One, it was dangerous physically, as we can see. Um, it was dangerous culturally for a woman at that time to go out on her own, to go out with protective male covering with her father or brothers or husband. And so, so she was already living on the edge. But secondly, this was a dangerous choice she made spiritually. Because remember, God had made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they and their progeny would be set apart, would be holy, would not intermarry, would keep themselves separate and distinct, and to be a witness ultimately for the glory and the salvation of the nations. And she has made a foolish choice in that way as well. And it says that as she goes out, Look back at the text. It says, Shechem, son of Hamor. There's a town called Shechem and a man called Shechem. You know, you get the idea like the guy owns the town. It's that sort of thing. It says that he seized her. And I mean, just to put it bluntly, there is some form of sexual assault that happens. And not only that, he seemingly has brought her into his home and is keeping her there. Now, the text also notes something that's kind of strange for us because we're not sure how to put this information with what just happened. But it tells us that, that Shechem loved and cared for her, that he spoke tenderly to her. And women, this is not how men should win friends and influence people, right? 
But he, he, he's drawn to her. He sends his dad out to negotiate for her hand in marriage. He tells her brothers, I'll pay any bridal price. Now, he loves her so much that somehow he was able to convince all the male villagers to get circumcised on because of this. Now, that's, that's some influence, right? That's love. We have a hard time putting this together with this assault that's happened. And, and one of the things that you just need to know, it was an ancient Near East custom, um, not necessarily widespread, but it did happen, where sometimes men, in order to force the hand of, like, one family forcing the hand of another family, they would do something like this to sort of force the marriage. But regardless of what has happened, this is, this is sort of has, this has sort of been what has unfolded right before Jacob. Now, I want you to notice something in the text. I want you to notice Jacob's response versus Dinah's brother's response once they heard this. Jacob, it said, heard, and it said he held his peace. He waited. But Levi and Simeon, on the other hand, were compelled to action They were indignant and they were angry, and by the way, righteously so. It's interesting that Moses, as he's writing this, makes this little piece of commentary when he says, this was an outrageous thing. This is a thing that has never been heard of in Israel. And I think what, what Moses is doing, he's drawing a contrast for us between the sort of compelled to action, indignant, righteous response on the part of the brothers and just silly, passive Jacob. One who was charged with leading and protecting is sort of immobilized at this point of his daughter's very safety. It's it's as if Levi and Simeon are said, if dad's not going to do anything, then we're going to take matters in our own hands. But of course, they choose a family trait they had learned all too well from their dad, which was what? Deception. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So they made a treaty with these men, and they agreed, we're going to intermarry, and we're going to share land, and we're going to intermingle together, just on this condition, just so that you get circumcised. Now understand, that was not a, a bizarre request, because circumcision happened in that culture even outside of Israel. It happened religiously, ethnically, it was, a, it was a t- sometimes a, a point of tribal identity, But whatever the case was, these men, this tribe, this town agreed. And look at verse 25, not to get too graphic. It says that they were sore, which is what you would expect with a primitive operation without anesthesia, right? Does not sound like a popular gig. But nonetheless, they were very vulnerable, incapable of fighting. Levi and Simeon came in with their crews and wiped them out. But not only that, they also took their wives and their children captive. And of course, all of this was egregious on two levels. We're going somewhere with this. First, this was not justice. Okay? Even by the Old Testament standard of eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, this was nothing but bare brutality. This was vengeance. And God reminds us in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, vengeance belongs to whom? To me, God says. And so they're taking matters into their own hands. But secondly, and I think this is just as serious, was their 
hypocrisy in using their religious devotion as a cover to commit a heinous crime and sin. See, God had given them circumcision as this, as a sign and symbol of his covenant, of his love for his people. And now they are playing on that. They are using their religiosity, their relationship with God, the forms of worship and sacrifice as a bare means of enacting this awful, terrible vengeance against these people. Now, here's the question, okay? And this is where all these things sort of get wrapped up together. Who is responsible for this? And two truths that we have to affirm, and it's the ones I mentioned right up top, number one, sin is never less than personal and individual. All of us are personally responsible before, not just to one another, but to God for our actions. Listen to Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So we stand and fall before God based upon the choices that we make. Yet, we also understand from Scripture that sin is always systemic. Listen to Exodus 20. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that because the father sins, the children are preordained to follow the father or the mother. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that there's a generational curse and that there's the the bad things that are going on in your life. You have to trace back one, two, three, four generations and rebuke the, the demon of this or the demon of that before you were free. It doesn't, I don't think that's biblical. I think what Exodus 20 is describing for us is the very natural human pattern of the laws of nature and of behavior and of modeling the fact that both the good and the bad are passed down systemically particularly through the family and boy don't we see this in Jacob's family see we we're we're stunned are we not by Jacob's passivity in this situation and we try to explain it And I really believe that Jacob's passivity is born out of his apathy for that side of the family. So let's think about this for a second. Who is Dinah? Who is Dinah's mom? Leah. Who is Levi and Simeon's mom? Leah. But who was Jacob's favorite? Rachel. See, and everyone in that family knew it. They knew it by the way they came to dinner. They knew it by the order in which they did things. They knew it by by whom got the the, the best seat at the table. As we're going to see next week, they they knew it by who wore the best clothes. This apathy that Jacob felt was resulting in this passivity. You could even see this, look in verse 30, when all this happens and it comes to light and Jacob finds out what his sons have done, Think about for a second who he's most concerned about. Is he concerned about his his children? 
His daughter who's been defiled. His sons who've committed murder. Look at verse 30. You have brought trouble on whom? Me. By making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. There are parents, there are so many, so many applications from this. Let me just mention one. You know, a lot of times when children aren't doing what we wish they would do, whether they're little children, grown children, whether it's, it's something small or something large, as parents, we can tend to feel an inordinate amount of disappointment, an inordinate amount of shame because of those things. Why is that? Well, we're a lot just like Jacob, right? We're afraid of how this reflects on us. How does this make us look? Parents, here's just a question for you. Is your heart broken more over your children because of the nature of what's at stake in your child's heart? Or are you more concerned about the nature of what is at stake with your reputation? See, God would have us be broken, but broken over their hearts, broken over their souls, on our knees, praying for them. This was not Jacob. And we can see how Jacob, and this is not absolved, Levi and Simeon and Dinah of their own personal choices. But we can see how Jacob and his apathy, Jacob in his favoritism, has just seeped down systemically into his family impacting, corroding everything that it touches. Guys, we don't read it here, but if you look over in chapter 35, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over chapter, uh, verse 22. Listen to what it says about Reuben. Now remember, Reuben was the oldest. He was, his mom was Leah as well. He was part of the crew that was playing second fiddle to Rachel. It says, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bila, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Billa, remember, was Rachel's servant. And by that point in the story, Rachel has already died. And so what would compel Reuben to do this? Well, Reuben knew that the, the, the mantle of matriarch was going to pass down to Rachel's servant, right? Not to his own mom. So his own status was threatened. And we can see how all of this jealousy and favoritism had just had instigated and woven itself all into this family. And let's be honest, parents, if we were to stop here and camp out on this for a while, this is a real point of pain for a lot of us, isn't it? It's a real point of pain. It's obviously not just applied to parenting. It can be applied to jobs, relationships, marriages, anything where we have seen up close and personal how our sin has impacted others. How our sin has systemically bred itself into the lives, sometimes of the people we love the most. And before we rush off that point, let me just encourage us, maybe at some point today, some point tonight, even in the quiet of your own heart right now, just linger there for a moment. Because I think God has put this text here for a reason. I think that God would want us to see in this one of the chief means that he uses for our own souls and sanctification. You see, the brokenness of those around us, as painful as it is to see, as, as, as difficult as it might be, dads, to see many me running around just like you, right? 
As difficult as that might be, what I believe God would have us do is say, you know, that's a mirror of you. That's, that's a window into your soul. Paul, if you want to see the depths of your own brokenness and of your own heart, let me just show you those around you. They are going to be a reflection in part. Without absolving them of their own choices and responsibilities, they're going to be a reflection of your own heart. And guys, that is so humbling. That is so devastating. But let me just say this. That is so necessary. See, because it's through that channel, through that very means, that God now gives us the opportunity for confession, for repentance, for faith. See, as God's people, when we read things like this, it's not meant to push us towards despair. Now listen carefully. It's meant to push us towards the cross. It's meant to push us towards the gospel of grace. It's meant to point us towards the only person who has any hope of ever resolving this mess. And guys, if we understand, there's going to be some things in this life that are just not rectified. There are some things that are never going back to the way they were. They're never going to be the way they're going to be. But that is not the decisive word in the believer's life. The decisive word in the believer's life is in fact the grace of God. That brings us to our our second and last point. Because I'm going to read some of these sections of of chapter 35 that we didn't read before. We're going to put these on the screen for you. Starting verse 1 of chapter 35. Now remember this. There are no chapter divisions or verse breaks in the original Hebrew. So the way this comes out is... The son saying, but they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And they're saying that to Jacob. Jacob's hearing the full force of that. He knows his failure. He knows his shame, even as he hears it. And immediately the next thing, let's read, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Jacob, as he's reeling from this rebuke from his murderous sons, and I think this is the way Moses means us to read this, then immediately here, hears from God who says, Jacob, go to Bethel. It's almost as if, and God did this with, his, with Elijah, if you remember, Jacob, what are you doing here? This is not where you were supposed to be. There is no life in Shechem as beautiful as it may look around you. There's only sin and misery and living out of fellowship with me. So now, go up. Now that word, go up, is the same one that we hear, read in the Hebrew in Psalm 24, 
when David tells us to go up, where? To the mountain of the Lord. See, it was in a psalm of ascent. It was to remind the Israelites, go up to Jerusalem and worship God there. That's where you will be renewed. That's where you will make sacrifice. That's where you will worship. In other words, what's happening here is God is initiating grace with Jacob. He's saying, Jacob, I I know there's all sorts of problems here. And by the way, those problems are never going away in the life of Jacob, as we're going to see in the rest of Genesis. But Jacob, that's not what's decisive about your life. What's decisive about your life, you need to know this. I'm not here to wipe you out, Jacob. I'm here to remind you of who you really are and where you should be. I know you've defiled me physically. I know you've defiled me spiritually, ceremonially. What I want you to do right now is think about the next thing that I'm calling you to do. Think about the next point of faithfulness in your life. Put away your gods, change your clothes, purify yourself. And Jacob says, let's go. And by the way, what I just described in a nutshell is what the Bible calls confession and repentance. It is the order of affairs for every believer this side of heaven. We never, four oaks, we never grow past this. We are in constant need of having the word of God hold up to us, whether it's through the lives of our kids or others that we have wounded, that we have hurt, who have been impacted by our sin, and to say, this is you, but there is a more decisive reality. And that decisive reality is my very grace. And Jacob hears the voice of God, and that is the mark of the believer. God, I know I'm broken. God, I know I'm sinful. I, I, I know I have done untold harm to those around me. I've, I've made huge mistakes with my fateful choices, but that's not the most important thing about me. That's not the thing that's decisive in determining who I am. And I want you to notice how God responds to Jacob's repentance. Look at verse 5. And as they journeyed, so Jacob's on his way now, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and the king shall come from your own body. This land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Something I want you to remember from a few weeks ago in Genesis 32 When was it that Jacob was renamed Israel? It wasn't here. He was renamed Israel for the first time in this same spot 20 years prior when all he had was a rock to rest his head on. 
Remember that? And we said at the time, we, we, we think that was probably Jacob's moment okay, of conversion. Then what's been happening in the next 20 years is just God working on Jacob's heart and his character. But isn't it interesting that all through this account with Dinah, although through this time when Jacob is in Shechem, that Moses, who's writing this, never refers to Jacob as Israel. And I think what Moses is doing for us here is that he's wanting to draw a contrast. That throughout this whole sordid account in Genesis 34, Jacob hasn't been acting like Jacob. He's been, he hasn't been acting like Israel. He's been acting like Jacob. Old Jacob. Sinful, fallen, selfish man Jacob. Striver, deceiver, one who lives apart from God versus his new identity. See, his new identity is one of Israel. And that was to signify God's covenant promise to him and his people that he was going to work his grace. He was going to build a nation. He was going to build a people through the line of Jacob. And it's just as if God is saying, Jacob, let me remind you who you truly are. You're not Jacob. I know you've been acting like Jacob. I know your life's kind of been in alignment with being Jacob. But you are Israel. I've written a new name on your heart. And I'm here by my grace to call you out of where you've been and to call you into who you truly are. And it says here, look in verse 5, that as Jacob goes forward now as Israel... It says a terror of God comes down upon the people around him. I mean, I mean, Jacob was terrified, right? His sons had just wiped out this whole village. And now God is calling him to journey through enemy territory to finally get to Bethel where he belongs. And it's a reminder for us. There is no safer place for us as the people of God than in the middle of the path of obedience. And it, because some of you are wondering right now, Pastor Paul, I'm, I'm hearing all this. I'm just wondering, what's, what's next? What's my next thing? Where do I go from here? What's your next point of obedience? What does faithfulness not look like 10 years down the line? What does faithfulness look like today? Jacob didn't know a lot. He just knew, go to Shechem. I mean, sorry, go, go for, leave Shechem and go to Bethel. And for all of us, we're faced with that choice today. At some point in our life, we're in Shechem, and God says, go to Bethel and trust me. By the way, this doesn't mean that there's no pain or suffering or death for us in that path of obedience. It doesn't mean that for Jacob. We find out later in chapter 35 that, in fact, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. And we know that this is going to result in another catastrophic set of choices where Jacob is making favorites of Joseph and Benjamin, where again, that systemic sin of favoritism is going to be permeating that family, and it's going to impact them for the rest of the book of Genesis. However, however, this is not Jacob's decisive reality. And if you know Jesus, it's not your decisive reality either. See, because here we're wrapping up the end of the patriarchal era. It started way back, 23 chapters before this. 200 years ago, 
And now the patriarchs are going to begin to fade and the life of Joseph and this new people in Egypt are going to begin to emerge. But here is the overwhelming theme, church, if you want to just sum up all of this from Genesis 12 all the way up to this point, and it's simply this, God's grace is decisive in the lives of his people. He is preparing the way for the son of Abraham the son of Abraham who's going to be the Messiah, the son of Abraham who's going to come and die on, the, for, on behalf of his people to make things right. John Walton says this, a dozen times the covenant during this 200 years has dangled by a single thread. Think about all those times. Think about the way Abraham's systemic sin has impacted Sarah and their kids and Isaac in the same way. And now Jacob, a dozen times the covenant has dangled by a single thread But God is faithful and sovereign, and his grace is sufficient, and I would add, and decisive. Where do you need eyes of faith this morning to believe that? To be reminded of that? Some of you are struggling mightily about the ravages of sin in your own heart or in your own family. Some of you look out culturally and you despair. Look at the condition of the world, the condition of the church, the mission of the gospel. But God says, those things aren't ultimately decisive. My grace is decisive because the blood of Jesus Christ speaks the final word for the people of God. Guys, we're we're in a season where we're hearing a lot of words, a lot of words, God wants to remind us as his people this morning, there's only one best word, one final word, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. And I call you to come to him, to flee to him today. Let's pray.